Hello and welcome to The Health Report with me, Norman Swan. And me, Tegan Taylor. Today, a treatment for insomnia that not only works, it prevents depression. Telling your biological age compared to your chronological age by looking into your eyes. Yes, that deep gaze. (laughs) And simple treatments and care which work for borderline personality disorder in young people. And whether wearables can help you increase your exercise level or have they been overhyped. How many steps did you do today? How many floors did you climb? If you're a human being existing in 2022, there's a decent chance you have a bit of tech on your person that is tracking how physically active you are. But does using a physical activity monitor actually help you be more active? Previous studies have had mixed findings. But now, a group of researchers in Denmark have pulled together all the available evidence and found that, yes, at least when it comes to your step count, physical activity monitors do make a difference. Jan Christensen was part of the study team and joins us now. Welcome. Thanks for having me. So you found physical activity monitor use did seem to increase people's activity by the equivalent of about 1,200 steps a day. What does this translate to in health terms? Well, we know that a thousand steps per day more will be equivalent with better health, uh, better health-related quality of life and less mortality. If you start wearing a step monitor and you kind of get motivated by that, that makes sense. But does the effect wear off over time? No, they will still work behind the first couple of months. We know that when you're using an app or something else, it will tend to decrease over time. But when we explored the heterogeneity of these studies included, we did not find that intervention length affected the results. Right. And so the other thing that you're looking at, you were looking at people kind of moving more. You're looking at moving people from light physical activity into that moderate or intense physical activity. And it seemed to do that a little bit, but it didn't really seem to reduce the amount of time that people weren't moving at all. No, despite having over 100 studies in the systematic review, and about half of them was looking at sedentary time, we couldn't see an effect on sedentary time or decreasing sedentary time. We see that in, in the individual studies as well, so it, it wasn't that surprising. We know that when looking at, at these outcomes, uh, sedentary time seems to to show competing results uh, as we can increase moderate to vigorous physical activity, but it wouldn't give the effect on certain terms. There is evidence that people really kind of use a wearable for about nine months and then they give it up. Is that something that your research looked into? Uh, not directly, but indirectly, we assessed the heterogeneity of the studies included, and we could not. So that's find the difference that between the study because you're looking at existing studies. So you're looking at the way they yeah. varied and how they looked, what they looked yeah. at. Yeah, yeah. sorry. Yeah. Uh, we did not have uh, individual participant data, uh, so we could not uh, look at individual level. But when we looked at group level, uh, we could not find that. So with the results that you have been able to confirm, how do you see this being used by medical uh, practitioners to sort of help improve their patients' um, physical activity? Yeah, these findings could have a, a broad Implication range from, ranging from general practitioners in a public health uh, way and uh, over to a hospitalized patient that we discharge from the hospital with, with uh, um, this intervention. But it's, it's, decent, uh, or it's uh, important to say that this is not one size fits all. Uh, we can see that within the studies that some respond very well to this and some do not respond at all. But when we're looking at group level, uh, we will see this uh, 
quite good uh, effect of these uh, wearables and step cameras and stuff like that. Does the type of wearable make a difference? I mean, my phone has a step counter in it, but I can choose not to use that versus some people who might have something that they wear on their wrist um, that might give a bit more precise information. Uh, the precision is another thing. <laughs> uh, ladies tend to have their phone in the back, uh, and then the precision is not that good. But if if the uh, people wear it in their pocket, then the the hardware uh, is designed to to measure the step count uh, in the pocket. So so it will be rather precise if you wear it in the pocket. But if you wear it in the back, it will not be that precise. But the question was about something else as well. Well, yeah. How much of a difference does it make to your actual physical activity if you're wearing something that's a bit more precise, or yeah. something that has an accelerometer in it, or something that that measures your heart rate as well? Yeah, the type of of outcome measure here does not matter. We cannot see that if you're wearing an accelerometer, a watch, or anything else. It's it's the feedback itself that 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 gives these effects. So so. The monitor does not seem to have a relevant effect itself. Briefly, the number of steps by itself only sort of tells you so much about how active someone's being, the intensity of their activity. Is step count still the right measure to be talking about here? The actual is, is the feedback you, you receive and, and, and that's affect your behavioural change to do more physical activity. Uh, and that could be done in, in different ways. It could be a step count. It could be uh, anything else you have feedback on, on including steps, a uh, number of stairs you climb, uh, stuff like that. So it's, it's the feedback that, that will, in terms, uh, motivate you to do more physical activity. So it's the, it's the motivator that's the message. Jan, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks. Dr. Jan Christensen is Senior Researcher and Head of Research in the Department of Occupational Therapy and Physiotherapy at Copenhagen University Hospital. And you're listening to RN's Health Report, so you can make up your own mind about the wearable. I've never had one myself. Now, there's a lot of community anxiety about sleep. Am I getting enough? If not, will I come down with dementia? And certainly insomnia appears to be very common. And while insomnia is linked to dementia might be debated, it's generally accepted there is an association with depression. A trial of helping people to reduce their insomnia to see whether that prevents depression has recently been published. The research group involved has a long track record in studying the effects of sleep on the body. The lead author was Professor Michael Irwin, who's in the Department of Psychiatry and Biobehavioral Sciences at the University of California, Los Angeles. I spoke to him earlier. Thank you very much. So which way does it go? Insomnia causes depression? Depression causes insomnia? I thought it was more that depression causes insomnia. Yeah, that's what has been traditionally thought. Most clinicians have focused on how depression causes insomnia. But about 10 years ago, we and other groups began to do studies to show that even in non-depressed people that have insomnia, they are at higher risk for developing depression. And depending upon the sample, it ranges between 2 to 5 to 10 percent, tenfold increase in risk. And that risk is um, particularly high in older adults who we have found have about a five-fold greater risk of developing depression if they have insomnia but are not currently depressed. Before we get to your trial, let's just define what we're talking about. My understanding is that there's been a misunderstanding about, in this sort of recent paper on this, the misunderstanding about what insomnia is. And when you look at older people, they're often spending nine or ten hours in bed and it's been assumed that it's 
you know, sleeping long is bad for you, but in fact what's happening is they're, they're spending nine or ten hours in bed trying to get to sleep. They're not sleeping nine or ten hours, but they're in bed for nine or ten hours struggling with their sleep. Yeah, that's very much the case. Older adults uh, will typically think that they need to go to sleep for eight to nine hours, but as we age, the normal amount of sleep that an older adult requires uh, is less than a middle-aged adult. And six and a half to seven hours is perfectly adequate for older adults. So one of the things that we need to do when we're working with older adults is educate them about their perceptions about what they need to feel good versus what they actually do need in terms of the need for their sleep. But isn't insomnia in the eye of the beholder? In other words, if you line up 100 people, some people who are sleeping six hours a night feel fine, and some people who are sleeping six hours a night say they've got insomnia. It depends upon the individual, and certainly insomnia is a subjective report diagnosis. It relies upon what the patient tells you. I think a critical component of insomnia is whether a person wakes up feeling rested after a night of sleep and whether they perceive that their sleep quality is good. If they actually are sleeping six hours and they perceive that they're restored and they're fully rested, I wouldn't consider that insomnia. Insomnia is a, is a subjective disorder, uh, reports of difficulty going to sleep, staying asleep, not being able to go back to sleep after you wake up in the middle of the night, or waking up too early, accompanied by feelings of depression and fatigue during the day. And so only a small number, a substantial number of older adults will have formal diagnostic criteria for insomnia, that is, these symptoms that persist for six months or longer. So you took people, about 300 people, they, some of them had a history of depression in the past, but they weren't depressed at the moment, but they had insomnia, and you tried two different kinds of treatments and then looked at what the effects were on subsequent depression. Yes, we know that insomnia is a risk factor for depression, as I just stated, increasing that risk between two to five fold greater. What hasn't been done is selectively targeting people that are, have insomnia that do not have depression. Previous studies have taken people that have emergent depressive symptoms and some insomnia and tried to treat and prevent a depression. They were not successful. They were able to improve the depressive symptoms, but not actually prevent the occurrence of a major depressive disorder. And this particular study is unique in that we took people that were not depressed, that had insomnia, and then treated them and evaluated over three years whether or not they got depressed or not using diagnostic criteria. And the two treatments, one was called CBTI, which involves cognitive behavioral therapy, but not catastrophizing your sleep, not getting anxious about it, but also about other adjustments, which are more than just sleep hygiene, which is about adjusting your time of going to bed and leaving the time of waking up in the morning the same so that you get a good night's sleep. And the other was sleep education therapy. What's involved with that? Sleep education therapy is a universal behavioral approach. It's essentially providing people with information about why sleep is important, what sleep is, what kind of tips, regular sleep hygiene tips that you can use to improve your sleep, such as not drinking coffee during the late evening, not drinking too much alcohol, maintaining exercising, keeping your bedroom quiet and, and cool when you're sleeping, not doing other things other than trying to sleep or have sex in your bed. So it is simply providing people with information and education about sleep. We're not working with them to see whether they actually implement those sleep hygiene tips. In cognitive behavioral therapy, 
were delivering that information as well as addressing their misconceptions about sleep, their emotions about sleep, and other tools that can help them sleep. But we're providing them with this information and the tools so they can actually implement those strategies to improve their sleep. So it's a very big difference between the two programs. And yet, the two groups perceive that these treatments are equally credible to improve their sleep, and they perceive that they had equal benefit for improving their sleep at the end of the treatment. Um, But in fact, when we look at the diagnosis of insomnia, CBTI produces a very robust remission of insomnia, about a two to three-fold rate of remission of insomnia, as compared to that found with the sleep education therapy group. And that's not so much increasing the sleep duration, it's getting a more satisfying night's sleep for the time you're in bed. Exactly, Norman. It's not about... Many, many trials have been done looking at CBTI and finding that Sleep duration is a component of sleep that's very hard to change, particularly in older adults. But what we can do, and what you mentioned early on, is we can help consolidate their sleep. So one of the strategies that's used in CBTI is to restrict, I know that sounds paradoxical, but we paradoxically restrict their sleep to a period of time where their efficiency of sleep, that is, how much time that they're actually in bed are they asleep? And we try to maintain that above 85%. And when we do that, we can consolidate their sleep so that their actual sleep is deep, it's restful, and restorative. And that's one of the major goals of um, CBTI. And you followed them for three years. What did you find with depression? Well, depression was substantially reduced in the individuals that had CBTI. In fact, about 50%, 51% to be exact, reduction in the likelihood of getting depressed. But what was also very important is that we found that the people that got CBTI and had a sustained remission of insomnia for the duration of that three-year follow-up, that they had no relapse of an insomnia, that those individuals had an 83% reduction and the likelihood of getting depressed as compared to the sleep education group who didn't have a remission of insomnia. And in fact, if you look at the numbers, only 5% of those in the CBTI group that had remission got depressed and over 27, nearly a third of the older adults in the set group who did not have insomnia remission got depressed. So that is a huge difference. What is it about sleep and interrupted sleep? that causes depression, do we know? Yeah, we don't have a good handle on that yet. We have been certainly interrogating those mechanisms in our lab and other groups. We know that how people process emotional signals from other individuals is altered when you have insomnia. We know that the ability to experience pleasure or reward is diminished in people that have insomnia. And those are two behavioral or psychological mechanisms as to how you can get depressed. But we've also shown, and our group has really led this work over the last 15, almost 20 years now, showing that sleep has a really critical role in the regulation of the immune system. And one of the things that happens when people don't sleep is they have an increase in inflammation. And inflammation, we know from separate studies, puts people at risk for developing a depression. And so embedded in this trial is evaluation of that mechanistic pathway between sleep, inflammation, and depression. And I hope to have that study published soon, where we're trying to evaluate whether the people that got the most benefit 
Uh, that is the most bang for their buck in terms of being treated with sleep and not having depression were those that also had a significant reduction in levels of inflammation. And that's related to probably the cause of cognitive impairment and dementia. And some people have argued that there's a common pathway here, that you've got insomnia, you've got depression, and these are people who are already at high risk of dementia. And it's really the risk of dementia that determines the insomnia and the depression rather than the depression and the insomnia causing the dementia. And it's put the fear of God in a lot of people. Um, where do you put the horse and cart here? Well, we published a review article on just that process or those mechanisms in Lancet Neurology a couple of years ago. And there's a good evidence that sleep problems, particularly sleep problems over a course of a lifetime, and many of our insomnia patients have decades of sleep problems, is a very significant risk factor for dementia. And we know that during sleep, there's a clearing of um, factors or toxins within the brain that when present and remain in the brain put people at risk for uh, dementia. As I also mentioned, inflammation is a very potent risk factor for dementia. And dementia over a period in your adulthood due to poor sleep, sedentary behavior, uh, poor diet, diabetes, cardiovascular disease, all those factors that can increase inflammation can also increase the likelihood of getting dementia. So, so just to I put a spanner in the works mm -hmm. of that theory, I mean, there are, there are people who've been following large cohorts of people who develop cognitive impairment, and they say that essentially you can pick up the signs of dementia many years before it becomes apparent. So it still could be that you've got somebody at risk of dementia who then goes on to get inflammation and insomnia. Yes, there are certainly some evidence to support that. And we know that there's a bi-directional link between dementia or cognitive impairment and sleep. And so that's one of the major you know, investigations. And, and we, there's no study yet that's ever been done that's targeted sleep or evaluated to what degree sleep disturbance over a long period of one's life is likely to lead to dementia. We do know that people that have a dementia have a substantial dysregulation of their sleep. And efforts to target that sleep problems in people that are demented are underway to actually improve their cognitive functioning. And I suppose we should say that this CBTI is also available online around the world. It is online. I do want to emphasize to your listeners that it is sometimes very difficult for people to adhere to the principles of CBTI. And so we focused on adherence and make maximizing adherence by having individuals meet with clinicians in person. And that can also be done through telehealth access. There's many online platforms and there's many apps that can be used to treat uh, sleep problems. The problem with those apps and, and some of the prior studies in this area is that people stop using them and they don't adhere to the principles. And so they don't get the benefit. And they certainly go, do not see a sustained remission of insomnia over time, which then is really critical for this depression prevention. Michael, thank you. You're very welcome, Norman. Michael Irwin is Professor of Psychiatry and Biobehavioral Sciences in the David Geffen School of Medicine at the University of California, Los Angeles. When we talk about our age, we're usually referring to the number of times we've orbited the sun. But when it comes to your risk of dying, a better predictor is your biological age, how battered or young your body is. Now, one way of calculating your bio age is by taking a blood sample and measuring the length of telomeres, the tiny end bits on our chromosomes, which act a bit like a clock, shortening each time our cells divide. 
The longer your telomeres, the younger you are biologically. Now researchers say they've found a less invasive way of measuring your biological age by looking at your retina. Yes, the tiny blood vessels at the back of your eye have a lot to tell us. Here to explain how is Lisa Zhu from the Centre of for Eye Research Australia. Hi, Lisa. Hi, Tina. Tinga, how are you? What are you actually looking at when you're looking at someone's retina? What is it telling you? Uh, our retina at the back of our eye can serve as a window to our health. At this place is a unique site where the small vessels and neural tissues can be visualized directly. And in addition, the previous studies have shown that retinal vessel changes, such as the vessel bleeding and the retinal disease, such as the age-related macular degeneration, are predictors for future systemic disease and mortality. And the recent introduction of the artificial intelligence in this field informs us that the retinal images contain information about the cardiovascular risk factors, such as the smoking status and the blood glucose levels and even the kidney functions. So you've used AI and retinal images to basically figure out whether they're a good way of predicting someone's biological age, and you found that, yes, they are. Yes, yes. Yeah, our study was based on the UK Bank study, which was the largest and population-based study involving more than half a million middle-aged and older UK residents. At the first step, we used the retinal images from 11,000 participants in the relatively good health status at the initial health check to train and validate the AI model for age prediction. And we found a strong association between the retina, predicted retina age and the real age with an overall accuracy of within 3.5 years. That is to say that we could accurately predict the age from the retina images. And then in the next step, we used the AI model that had been validated in the first step to predict the retina age in an independent sample of 35,000 participants, the retina age gap, that is the difference between the predicted retina age and actual age, was calculated. So far, we got monitoring periods of up to 11 years for these participants, and we could link them to the death registry where we could capture the date of death. And we found that faster agers, those whose retinas looked much older than the actual age was significantly associated with the risk of mortality. Right. So you've been able to follow up, figure out who did die and and then sort of work backwards as well. What exactly yeah. are you looking for in those retinal images? Are, are their blood vessels more narrow or are there other other clues? What What's actually the visual clue there? Uh, actually, we use the artificial intelligence to predict the age from the retinal images. And artificial intelligence is definitely a buzzword these days. And the AI can learn the way that people acquire the knowledge. And in the current study, we just labeled all the retinal images with age. And after learning features or patterns related to age through more than 11,000 retinal images, and the AI was able to predict the age on an unseen retinal image. And uh, however, there is a black box through this AI process. So we didn't know how exactly the AI to predict the age, but uh, the heat map shows us that the AI focus on the retinal vessels. So you couldn't look at a retinal image and tell you, but the AI could. Yes, yes, that's true. (laughs) Okay, all right, interesting. So you were looking at... um, UK residents, 
there's more mm-hmm. people who live in the world than just uh, people who are in the UK. There's probably some uh, some racial differences there. Is this something that you yes. could look at a more broad audience to make sure it was going to be representative uh, globally? Yes, you got the key point. Uh, actually, uh, I was very lucky to receive the investigative grant from the National Health and Medical Research Council. This grant will allow me to have the next five years to focus on refining our model with big and diverse data that is more representative of the world population. For example, the retinal images from Asian and African populations and this would definitely improve the performance and also the generalizability of our model. So if someone, it's not anything special about the retinal image that's being taken, it's more about the AI being able to use it to diagnose. Yes, that's true. And uh, it's very easy and uh, cost-effectiveness. So how do you see this, briefly, how do you see this being used in the real world? Uh, yeah, as I just mentioned, the simple, fast, cost-effectiveness and the non-invasive nature of the retina image enables it as an accessible screening tool. For example, for those faster agers, we can implement tailored or individualized interventions. For example, changing their unhealthy lifestyles like quitting smoking, doing more exercise, or more intensive management of the chronic conditions like high blood pressures and diabetes. And what's more, our research group has also developed an artificial intelligence model to detect the eye disease based on the, just based on the retina images. So combining these two technologies together, the patients could maximize their benefits out of having the eye checked, not only detecting the sight-threatening eye disease, but also quantifying the aging process. So it's one to watch closely. If you pardon the pun, Lisa, thanks for joining us. Thanks. Take it. Dr. Lisa Zhu is a postdoctoral research fellow from the Centre of Eye Research Australia. Look out. Borderline personality disorder is a disabling mental health issue that can deeply affect the lives of people who experience it and certainly can be damaging to the people around them. We ran a special feature on borderline personality disorder a few months ago made by Sarah Seggi and it generated huge interest amongst you. Today we take the story further. Borderline personality disorder has the reputation of being hard to treat but a new trial in young people suggests that you don't need long-term care from professionals who specialise in the disorder. And that's great news since it means treatment can become much more widely available and affordable. Professor Andrew Channon is the Director of Personality Disorder Research at Origin. That's the National Centre of Excellence in Youth Mental Health at the University of Melbourne. BPD is a common and severe mental disorder that's really characterised by extreme sensitivity to interpersonal slights, an unstable sense of self and very intense and volatile emotions and impulsive behaviours. And so characteristically, people have chaotic relationships, fear abandonment, have very unstable moods, have rage episodes, and really have a, a difficulty maintaining continuity of a sense of who they are, and often engage in impulsive behaviours that might include recurrent self-harm and suicide attempts, which are one of the things that health professionals know very well with regard to BPD. Now, this study was a study of young people. What age does it start? Do you start seeing this? Yeah, so that's a good question because our work over the last couple of decades at Origin has been to validate the diagnosis in young people. And so we're very confident about making the diagnosis from puberty onwards. And although you can trace the roots of the disorder often earlier, 
the disorder seems to come on with the kind of drives of puberty, particularly the cognitive changes in puberty that allow somebody to develop a sense of self and that reflective capacity. And so it seems that there are developmental deficits that come to the fore around about puberty and start to manifest as this disorder. And they can be quite lonely people because it's hard to make friends when you've got that problem. Yeah, early on, they're not so lonely. That's a feature later in the disorder. They can certainly have difficulties in the school setting or post-school, but characteristically, they have recurrent difficulties with people. They're trying to fit in. They try to meet the kind of social norms, but actually spectacularly unsuccessful at doing so. And it's often the experience of that later in life that drives them to become more isolated and lonely and, of course, unemployed as well. Now, Origins world famous for its early intervention in people with schizophrenia with uh, some success. And this is an early intervention here, not with schizophrenia, but in young people with borderline personality disorders. And you're comparing three kinds of early interventions because it used to be said, you've got borderline personality disorder, it's hopeless, just turn out the light and give up. That's correct. People used to say that. And one of the good news stories of the last three decades really is that in adults with borderline personality disorder, there's really an overwhelming body of evidence showing that it's treatable. And one of the difficulties, though, is that the outcomes for treatment in adults with borderline personality disorder, while good, are not great. So we reasoned that starting earlier in the course of the disorder might lead to better outcomes, as we've done at Origin in schizophrenia and other psychotic disorders, that possibly applying what might be simpler interventions, but earlier in the course of the disorder, might lead to better outcomes. What were these three interventions? So we combined two elements of treatment, individual psychotherapy and variations on that, and the service model. Therapy really never happens alone with people with borderline personality disorder. It comes usually in a clinical package. And we work up until now, and in fact, the work that you interviewed me about a number of years ago, really has led to the point where we thought that maybe the service model was actually the more important part of treatment. And so we wanted to test that. So we combined the individual psychotherapy that we offer, which is called cognitive analytic therapy, with the full model in our HYPE program, the Helping Young People Early program, which is our early intervention program for BPD. And then we removed the psychotherapy and substituted it with a treatment called befriending, which is basically having a pleasant chat to somebody. And if they start to talk about problems, you have to redirect them to talk about pleasant topics like sports or movies or other kinds of things. And then the third thing that we wanted to compare was whether a specialist BPD service that we operate in the HYPE program was superior to just a generalist uh, youth mental health service. So people who are used to seeing young people, but not specialists in seeing people with borderline personality disorder. And we also combined that with befriending so that they didn't receive any psychotherapy. And when you say service model, I mean, this is jargon, that just means support and lots of other disciplines available to you in terms of jobs, retraining, that sort of thing. Yeah, it means the whole package of assessment and support practical support very often, attending to crises, attending to problems like homelessness, physical health, sexual and reproductive health, the whole range of problems that come in the package with borderline personality disorder. What did you find? So we found that all three groups got better 
pretty much to an equal extent, which was a big surprise for us. We thought that the full package would be superior to the package minus the psychotherapy, and we thought that the package minus the psychotherapy would be superior to the generalist model. What this really indicates is that particularly individual psychotherapy isn't the be-all and end-all of early intervention for borderline personality disorder, which we think is a really important finding because if you ask any clinician what's the treatment for borderline personality disorder, they'll tell you long-term individual psychotherapy. It's a kind of one of the sacred cows of the field. And yet what we've shown is that brief early intervention leads to substantial improvement. So if it's not the psychotherapy... Can you unpick, given that you don't have to catch the bus to Melbourne to go to Origin for this, and it means that uh, the good news is that wherever there's a reasonable youth mental health service, they can learn to treat this, which is great. What would be the core elements if you were in Double or um, Geraldton in terms of providing care for somebody with borderline personality disorder? Yeah, so that's exactly the implications of this, that in Dubbo or Geraldton or wherever, they should be able to provide what's called clinical case management and general psychiatric care. They're the two core components of this model. So looking after the whole whole person, looking after the psychological problems, and presumably also providing that multidisciplinary approach, which is about housing, jobs, and other things that you were just talking about. Exactly. And also treating the other common mental health problems that uh, people with borderline personality disorder turn up with. So they almost all uh, have problems with depression, anxiety. They also sometimes have psychotic symptoms, particularly auditory hallucinations hearing voices. And they also come along with a whole range of, as you, you suggested, other problems like homelessness and, uh, and housing problems or housing instability. So addressing all of those problems seems to be the bedrock of treatment. And in addition, we think, and this is not really tested in the study, but one of the thoughts arising from this study is that probably not arguing with the patient about whether to provide them with a service or not is actually an important part of this. What happens at the moment is people with borderline personality disorder, young people, turn up to services and services will often bend over backwards not to treat them. Uh, And they'll often say, we don't have anybody trained in one of the brand name psychotherapies, so we can't offer you treatment. No escape for the service. They've got to do the basics. Yeah, they have to do the basics. But also, you know, one of the early things we found was when you stop fighting with this patient group, they're actually a really rewarding patient group to work with. And that most of the problems that arise are through trying to avoid offering treatment. So there's a lot of stigma within the health profession. Absolutely. And most of it perpetrated by the health professions. The community mostly wonder what is borderline personality disorder. They don't really discriminate against people with borderline personality disorder. In fact, they often think this person's unwell and needs help. Whereas there is a deeply rooted culture of bigotry and discrimination in health systems against this patient group. And people have suffered for years from this. And now we would argue that There's no excuse for refusing treatment in young people or an excuse for not making the diagnosis. That's one of the other forms of discrimination that occurs, that people won't make the diagnosis or won't tell people that they've got the diagnosis. Sometimes with good intentions, they want people to not be exposed to the discrimination of the health system, so they won't write it in the patient file. But it actually then leads to a misapplication of treatment. The message from this trial is that not only is treatment effective, 
but early diagnosis allows for early application of simpler and effective treatment. But this is not something that can be treated with your five or ten psychologist appointments that are in the Better Mental Health Programme or whatever they call it these days. Well, I, I, I would slightly disagree with that, actually, that the problem with the way that system, the Better Access Scheme is structured is that it rewards solo practice. And what this needs is multidisciplinary practice, but it doesn't necessarily need lengthy practice. People with borderline personality disorder, particularly young people, tend not to stay for long periods of time in treatment. So actually in this study, the number of sessions received, it varied according to the group, but was only about uh, four sessions in the youth mental health group and was around about 11 sessions in the other two groups. So the other two groups, the hype groups, they retain people in treatment better than the youth mental health group. They all got to the same end point, but we would argue that the first two groups, the hype groups, meet community expectations that somebody should be doing something with these young people, but they don't need long periods of treatment. They need episodic treatment and they need availability of treatment periodically as they make the transition to adulthood. But the idea that it always has to be lengthy and uh, uninterrupted treatment is really not correct. And finally, what was a good outcome? The good outcome was that the main outcomes from this study, the primary outcomes, were psychosocial disability. We measured that in two ways, both daily functioning, so ability to carry out your day-to-day -day activities like work or school or whatever it might have been, and also interpersonal problems. And both of those reduced by about a fifth to a quarter. And then in terms of the secondary outcomes, we actually saw 40 to 50% reductions in BPD features, so the diagnostic features, in suicidal thoughts, in uh, self-harm and suicide attempts, and also marked reductions in depression as well. Do they need top-ups? They do. We didn't test that in this study, but certainly our two decades of experience in the field indicate that people will come back for further episodes of care. Andrew, thank you very much indeed. You're very welcome. Thank you for your interest. Professor Andrew Channon is the Director of Personality Disorder Research at Origin, the National Centre of Excellence in Youth Mental Health at the University of Melbourne. We'll see you next week. See you then.